Welcome to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. Planet Pod is an Akil Sounds production hosted by me, Amanda Carpenter, edited and produced by Jim Haywood, with additional research by Beth Palmer. Hi, Jim. It's good to be back after our break, isn't it? Uh, 2019, promising to be a very interesting year for lots of reasons, and especially for Planet Pod. It is, and we've got some great programmes lined up, which I'm really excited about. Um, we've also got our new pod shorts and our pod specials as well, which are, I think, this bite-sized insights into a range of topics, uh, ranging from smart ledgers to the NHS, a whole range of things, so really exciting. Pretty pods? Petty pods? Mm, sorry, terrible pun. Mm, not so sure about that. <laughs> How are your New Year's resolutions coming on then? Yeah, not too bad. I've decided not to set any particular ones. But one thing I'm trying to do is to give myself each day, some, do something which uh, just for me, really. Um, so at the ma- moment, I'm trying to finish off a model ship that I've been making for about eight years now. The so. model ship? <laughs> the model ship. So one day I'll get it done. But that's, that's my task. So each day I'll give at least half an hour to doing that, so bit of self-care yeah yeah, yeah it's, really, it's very therapeutic really really important and, and really typical topical actually because the program we've got today is about health and well-being and looking after ourselves um, being more resilient and the things that we can do and and you know my besetting sin is saying yes to too many things so one of my resolutions was to try and say no um, to things and not take on too many projects see you rolling your eyes already at that comment um but but with our guest today i might be able to pick up some tips about how to be more resilient and better able to cope that'd be great so you're going to be saying no to things well obviously nothing you asked me to do i mean i should obviously say yes to everything you say jim but in the future i should try and say no to things that are not core to what i'm trying to do I'll, i'll hold you to that fantastic January is always a good time to talk about New Year's resolutions and changes and we want to focus today on the podcast on things we can do to improve the world we live in, both our working world and our wider world. And we're looking at kind of the relationships between mental health and physical health and the workplace and what we can do around you know, being healthier and more resilient. And I'm joined in the studio by um, Ben Maguire, who's Director of Innovation and Business Change at Simmons & Simmons, which is an international law firm. Um, and we have Philippa Gill, who's a partner at Verta Dextra, and they specialise in the relationship between people in the built environment, and particularly the role of technology. So I'm going to be really interested to hear a little bit more about her work. And by Dr Carol Pemberton, who's an expert in organisational and personal resilience and a highly respected author and academic. So welcome to you all, and thank you very much for joining the first pod of 2019. Um, it's really, I think, and probably an overused um, expression that we live in challenging times, but I think that probably we have never been in a more challenging and uncertain time than we are now, both politically and environmentally and in terms of the economy. And as those pressures continue to mount, both inside and outside the workplace, it's really putting an enormous strain on individuals, um, whether it's long hours or too much work, not enough work, whatever. And I think that's really focused people's minds on resilience. And I know resilience has been banded around, particularly in relation to, um, to the Prime Minister. As we record this, Theresa May is still currently the Prime Minister. Um, and people have said she's resilient. Other people have said she's just dogged. But in order to get a context, Carol, could I ask you just to, to explain to, to listeners what we mean by resilience, both organisational and personal? 
Well, I think often people think it's that just head down, keep going, I can deal with whatever's thrown at me. So it's like it's an armour that you put on, and I, I suspect some of that is, is being reflected in what we're seeing in, in Theresa May's behaviour. But actually, I believe that resilience is really about how your adaptive capacity, because sometimes just head down, carrying on doing the same things and working harder, working longer, cutting out you know, feelings trying to just find capacities to keep you going, like alcohol or whatever you use, um, that's not resilience. That's just hanging on to the wreckage. It's coping. But resilience is about, can you be hit by some sort of disruption? And within that, you can adapt. You can find a way through it. Um, And as a result of it, you've got some learning that you can then take forward so that you're better equipped to deal with whatever the next disruption is. Or if it's just that work goes on and on and on and on, as it does with no breaks because of the pressures, how do you start adapting yourself so that you're still taking care of yourself and not just being used up? So very much in that scenario, the the impetus is on the individual to make adaptions and change to to whatever's causing Mm. the stress, isn't it? And I think that, as you say, many of us just resort to, you know, another glass of wine at night. Um, Is there a responsibility on our employers and in the workplaces to to, to improve conditions to make people more resilient or to improve organisational resilience or actually make people less stressed so they don't have to be so resilient? Well, I think we're starting to see organisations paying attention to that. I think think what is emerging is two ends, actually. I think at one end, you're getting organisations who are saying, in order to work here, you have got to be resilient, right? Because this is the environment we provide, and we'll reward you very well, but you've got to show you're made of the right stuff. And I think that's one. And that's what contributes to those very long hours... Long, you know, presentism culture, isn't it? And yeah. ridiculously late nights, and perhaps something, you know, Ben is nodding. Perhaps something <laughs> that some law firms are, are are guilty of that kind of too much work culture. Yeah, yeah, I think that's. I mean, I, I think that's right. But I think um, I don't. I wouldn't say we just have a responsibility. I think it's in the interest of employers mm-hmm. and organisations uh, to ensure that people are resilient because. Actually, we've lived in a market for a very long time, which is pretty short-term focused. So it tends to have a 12-month cycle. We're a partnership. We pay our partners at the end of that 12 months. But actually, we're in a business environment, which has a really now a 10-year horizon because we're being disrupted as a, as a sector. So, yeah, I would say unless we help our people mm. be resilient, we will fail. And there are some companies who are now addressing that, who are putting it on the table and saying uh, it, you cannot be a healthy organisation if this is the way in which we deal with the demands on people, if we just sort of act as though people are robots and they can just take on more and more. And so I am seeing in some big companies now where they're saying, one, it's okay to talk about the effect that work is having on you. And then we can start to bring in new approaches which are responsive to that. So in a way, almost allowing people to bring their humanity to work rather than pretending... One, I'm exhausted because of work. Two, I'm going through a divorce. Three, I've got children who've got all sorts of teenage problems. And I've got a mother or father who's, you know, requiring care attention. And I'm supposed to turn up as a transformational leader for this team. Now, (laughs) that is just not humanly possible. Um, And I think being able to start saying, if we can be honest with each other about the reality of working in organisations, 
then we can start thinking about ways of working with that, which is for everyone's benefit, including the organisations. That demanding of people to be resilient, and it goes on the job, you know, often on the job description, isn't it? And it's something I think you see particularly when you look at, you know, um, organisations that recruit young people, you know, the, the, the millennials, millenniums who are going into work now, who are expected to have all of these skills and be super, you know, multitaskers, but also be, you know, totally self-sufficient. Um, uh, actually, that isn't always, as you've said, that isn't always realistic, is it? I mean, just paying somebody more just so they can take more and more pressure is not going to benefit the organisation. You're going to get burnout. You're going to get loss, I assume, at the highest levels, and that's something that, that you probably have experienced. Yeah, I think that's then. right. But I, um, you know, I, said, I have to say, I've, I've, um, so I used to be a soldier in a former life, but since I've been working out, in, I've worked in the city for five years now, I see that sort of demand less and less um, in terms of recruitment, and I see what I see much more of is a requirement to be adaptable and flexible. So, for example, here at Simmons, you can, it's a very small thing, it might seem that you can work from home one day a week without asking anyone. Um, you know, one of my team was working from Canada last week because her, you know, her father needed her in, over in Canada. So, uh, but it's the ability to still perform while being flexible and adaptable, which is something that people are asking of them. Um, and, but it is certainly in the professionals, and particularly in law, a very grave concern that people are going to suffer because of there is the potential for this isolation. Um, and also we make our own businesses in the profession. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a partner here is really a business on his or her own. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're carrying not just, you know, their job at the firm, but their own uh, practice. And I think that, that, I mean, it's interesting you say you allow people that flexibility of working from home, but, but it's not always the ideal solution because, I mean, agile working is very good for organisations because it takes people you know, out of the building and therefore off the footprint and can help with, with building costs. But, but we just push people into their own spaces and, and there is a potential for loneliness. And, and Philippa, your whole, your whole background and work is around people's interaction with buildings and things as well, isn't it? And making workplaces fit for people. Is that something that you've experienced with people who've introduced agile working and have actually found that, that you know it's great for the firm but not so great for the person? I mean, I think um, as a reflection also of what Carol was saying about we're starting to see organisations uh, realise the potential they have in their people but also the risks of carrying on as it was before. Um, I mean, I've worked myself into burnout twice. You would have thought once was enough, but now I thought I'd do it again, just for good measure. Um, as was that in a large organisation? Yes. Well, that was in a, uh, not dissimilar from a law firm, in a private equity environment, which is very high-pressured and very well-paid. Um, and it's, uh, it's certainly, I think coming out of the 80s and 90s, lots of glass towers were built and lots of big spaces. And it was very much, please leave your humanity at the door. We haven't paid you to be a human. We've paid you to be here as long as inhumanly possible. Um, and I was head of HR for one of those organisations. And, you know, hand on heart, we didn't... Uh, it mattered to people that people performed and it mattered that they were happy. But it didn't go anywhere beyond that. We certainly didn't think about them as... Um, as a holistic human being in the sense that they probably needed water, good air... Uh, and a walk in the park. I mean, it, it's interesting to me that, you know, if we think about how we look after our pets, you know, we think about, I mean, the, the vet bills in this country are incredible. 
Um, and people are very concerned about making sure they've got enough exercise and that they get enough fresh air, that they're in the right environment, they choose the right stick to go and throw for them. And yet, when it comes to ourselves, somehow uh, we think that because we have you know, this thing called free will, but what happens to people when they, and maybe Carol's you know, done some research on this, but people get into a corporate work environment and somehow switch off their own humanity and either do one of two things, bury their head, it's all right, I'll just get home and have a glass of wine or flop on the sofa and watch mindless television and it will be okay. Or they say, well, this fictional someone else will take care of it. So whether that someone else will actually put my cup in the dishwasher or it's someone else will worry about the fact that I'm here till 11 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And why isn't someone else noticing? So one of the, I mean, we're starting to see um, buildings driven by the realisation that, and I don't actually like the word, but the millennials, certainly the next generation, um, are not going to accept this. There is a very different view of the world now. And working for unethical companies who don't see you as a functioning human being people don't want to go work for those places so when people in the, in the hard end of the real estate world say to me well where's the where's the roi on a healthy building the roi being sorry the return on investment like, well, how do i get my bang for my buck if i make my building healthier um i say to them it's all right you just sit there because your building is going to be empty very shortly and the people in there if you have any people in there are going to be employers without staff because next door is transforming itself into much more community-based buildings, buildings with different kind of spaces. Some of that is flexible working. Um, some of that is about having much more nature inside the building. So these glass stone boxes, which encourage leaving your humanity at the door, are starting to be replaced by very green spaces, lots of natural environments and different spaces. If you think at home, you never stay in one position all the time. You might read in one corner you might be too hot you move to somewhere else so it's this realization that we're an animal we are a mammal and we need the same way our puppies need to be taken out and taken for a run to keep them healthy we need to be doing the same thing for ourselves and i'm interested that you say that there is that that push because i mean i we, we read about it all the time we sense that young people are not going to stand for things perhaps their parents stood for um but then they're caught in that trap, aren't they? You leave university, you know, higher education, often with a big debt. Um, you need to get a job. The jobs, you know, are very, very competitive. You get in and then you immediately find yourself falling into that trap where you are working very long hours, you know, high reward at the end of it. But you're actually disempowered from really making that, that voice heard in the organisation. So, I mean, and I would like to think that, that that's true, that we, our young people are empowered to say enough is enough and put their hands up. But, but are we seeing enough evidence for that? Or is it just a small section who are perhaps fortunate enough to, to get into a start-up or work in a hub or, or work flexibly? I mean, are there enough stats to prove that? Because, you know, having got someone who's, you know, in their 20s looking for a job at the moment, <laughs> I feel this very keenly. I mean, I, you know, I think there's always going to be extreme ends of the market. So there'll always be the companies where, you know, the queue for recruitment is out of the door. Um, because there's so much data now in terms of, um, in a way that there never was, you know, 20 years ago of, well, what's it really like to work for that company? You know, this started, we saw it in the US, one of my previous employers with something that, um, which was people anonymously providing information to graduates coming into a big firm um, that was totally different from what they were being told in their interviews. 
never come and work for this team. Mm-hmm. You know, the partner is a complete nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, employers beware. I mean, the, the, the information is out there and reputation, and I say this to someone who's been head of HR, reputation is a very fickle thing. Mm-hmm. So not everybody has the choice. But, you know, as I always say to people, you know, our jobs are incredibly important for a sense of self-fulfillment, for obviously economic reasons, but they are jobs. Like, you don't want a hug from your boss. Can't confuse the currencies. You know, you give your commitment and your loyalty and your hard work and your engagement to an employer, but you can't expect them to, uh, you know, give you a hug on the way home every night. And there's a supply chain drive as well. I think that's almost more of Effective. So we, you know, clients will not see us for a pitch now if we're turning up without a diverse team, both in terms of skill set, gender, you know, yeah. PME, background, and so on and so forth. So there's an inherent supply chain responsibility, and actually we're seeing that move things much quicker than, say, younger people uh, having a voice and being empowered, because as you say, that can be quite a long burn yeah. into the organisation. Undoubtedly, it will kill us, you know, if we don't do something about it, because that's the talent looking for for the future um, but the you know a client saying you will sign up to this mental health charter as many law firms have done is much more you know quick I think and powerful in that regard do you think there's still a, a stigma around those mental health issues because really interesting what you were saying for the problem I mean, we, we we put all that attention on our pets we do to ourselves as well you know new year lots of people have signed up to the gym they've stopped drinking for January they've vowed to do you know as I have couch to 5k which would be an interesting process keep you posted um, so we, we, we put that attention on ourselves but as you say we walk into an organisation and we don't do that I mean is there a is there a stigma around talking about mental um, health within organisations still because I know that it's something that, 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 that we're more able to talk about in the wider world but I sense that in some firms you know it's lip service and it isn't really you know being resilient is, is code for just you know putting up and shutting up I think it depends again it depends doesn't it I mean I can think of large organizations where because people at the very top have experienced depression inability to sleep have seen the effect it had on them that it's become okay and, and we know that there's now a spectrum like it's okay to talk about depression it's certainly still not okay to come in and say actually I'm bipolar um, so we've normalised certain things mm. and and I think there's some risk in that because I see a lot of people using the language very loosely now um, rather than in a clinical sense. So I think that's happened and I think younger people are much, much more willing to talk about their mental state and their mental health than their parents would have been. So I think there is a change. But I think the other change is, you know, organisations are not going to be like they are in now. You know, if you look ahead, even 10 years, I mean, all the predictions are there aren't going to be lots of these big FTSE type with their big graduate recruitment schemes. There are not going to be a lot of those. There are going to be lots and lots of startups or people coming in and out as they're needed. And that's where they need that adaptive capacity because there ain't no career plan that you can build for the future. Whereas the generations before you got taken in by a company like yours well you could, that was it yeah. you could just look ahead to the pension I think you hit the nail on the head with the leadership as well you know in professions you're in a mentor apprenticeship relationship and that's how you're trained mm-hmm. to be a lawyer mm-hmm. and therefore you are emulating mm-hmm. the generation above you and if the generation above you 
doesn't talk about mm. these things, then they're the first people mm. you've got to convince to start mm. talking about these things and start to consider that the way they've done it for the last 25 years, however successful they've been, and in law they have been mm. very successful in the, on the whole, um, that they need to start ad- addressing that. So I think leadership is absolutely vital when it comes to personal resilience. It's not enough to bolt it onto the side or to have a sort of HR-driven you know, program or whatever it happens to be. It's absolutely what in the army would have called a chain of command responsibility mm-hmm. from the top to the bottom. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there are parallels with, with commitments around sustainability in the environment as well, aren't there? I mean, a lot of things you've been saying, Philip, about buildings being healthier, they are by definition, therefore, more sustainable and have a smaller carbon footprint. But, but you know, the cynic in me says sometimes I see that, that there's a signing up to that, but it's actually only, you know, the signing of the policy um, and, you know, how many firms really have genuinely lost work because they haven't actually evidenced that they're sustainable or they ever haven't evidenced they've got good you know mental health policies mm-hmm. and while it's there as a, on on the pitch is it is it just a tick box is it more than a tick box how do we shift that culture so it really is core and is that the power of people not going to work for you or is it the or is it really the bottom line you know when you genuinely hits the hits the finance and the partner's bonus I, I think it's collective I think the most effective way is when we get together and commit to it and that's client third party law firm in our case plus the business that we're all supporting and trying to do plus the government plus you know outside agencies are trying to improve this and that is again a leadership issue in reality that's when it's most effective um, because you know the values will only ever be driven by the client based on their own organisational values. You know, so if they are on point and its sustainability is a really is a real you know value that's driving them, then they will instruct us on that basis. If it's not, then evidently it, it will be a tick box exercise. But that's why I think you know these sort of more collective at a senior level um, efforts to address these issues are actually going to bear fruit. And the, you know, the mental health charter in, in law, for example. Is, is one of those ones that I think could work really well. Yeah. We have got to empower people to feel that they can control their own well-being as well, though, haven't we? We've got to actually allow people to, to say, actually, no, I am going to go home now. I've worked long enough. I've done enough hours. I mean, this building isn't healthy. I need to, to, to be out and have exercise. I need to take a lunch break. Those sorts of things. And I don't know, how, how, do we, how do we do that? Because that actually is quite a challenge when we're under an enormous economic pressure at the moment and people are very concerned about their, their finances and their future. And I think this is a bit like having, having children. It's a trust relationship um, between employer and the employee. Um, you know, I used to travel every week for my job. And no one ever asked if I was at my desk, because I usually wasn't at my desk. I was usually somewhere else, buried in the plant room of a building. Um, so, but the work still got done. Now, I was lucky enough to work for an employer who, and we all travelled all the time, which is in itself is exhausting and very lonely. Um, but the work got done, and, and that's the trust relationship. Here are your targets, here are your goals, here's what we expect of you. How you do that, you're a grown-up, go, go and do it. If, you know, I mean, if you need to go to the gym at 10 o'clock, because that's the day... You know, and then the time that it suits you and it works for you, you don't need to ask me. You're a grown-up. Now, you you need a certain organisation that is a grown-up organisation to allow that to happen. Um, but I think one of the dangers, and we're starting to see this coming out now, two anecdotes. Of course, I can't prove them. One recently that um, people who had been decamped into a very well-known co-working space 
found it so unpleasant and disruptive that they were paying for their own much nicer, quieter co-working space and instead of turning up to the one where their whole team had been decamped were actually escaping that um, the, as someone said to me the other day the compulsory fun um, environment you, you will have fun and a free beer um, to go to somewhere where they could be much calmer and much more and it's funny once you unshackle people from this is the building you will go to every day and this is how you will behave suddenly they wake up and go well I can just find my own space that suits me and I also think the other thing that's become really apparent to me is we've um, and this country is particularly bad at it separated physical and mental health and well-being to an extent that that people don't understand and don't really listen to their own body in terms of how is my body feeling almost like your body was a pet you know how is my how is my body is it okay does it need something what's it trying to tell me this massive headache is a, is a warning signal and I'm not just going to take an aspirin because actually if I think about it I've had it for a week there's something there's a message here there's something going on and I think that's our responsibility um, and, and to be honest and I've said this to people over the years many times uh, if you take those issues to your employer enough times to say you know I'm the kind of person who thrives in this kind of environment and I need to work in this way and I still deliver what you're asking me to deliver you know, I'd like to work in a different way. Well, after a number of times of no, then you have a very clear choice. And and that's incumbent on the employer once it's been raised. We're not mind readers and head of HR in their defence. Very rarely happens. No one comes to tell you as head of HR, I'm having a great day. So if you are, can I appeal to all listeners, if you are having a great day and you love your organisation, just drop in and drop them a coffee and say, I've just come to say, everything's Thank great you, HR. and I don't need a tissue, everything's fine. But I think, you know, if you get those issues raised to you and you provide a collaborative environment where it's okay to go and raise issues, it's a win-win for everybody. But I think the point you're making about actually a prime responsibility is just to respect what you know about yourself. I'm just reading a brilliant novel at the moment called Different Drummer which is about actually uh, uh, a southern state in the 50s where suddenly all the Negroes just leave they just leave the farms and leave and they, they evacuate and they say you think we've been waiting for you to give us freedom, we've just decided to take it and there's something there about saying, noticing, rather than thinking, I shouldn't feel, I shouldn't be having headaches, I'll just take some more ibuprofen, I shouldn't be tired because that person next to me seems to be able to work 14 hours a day. But actually, I am a really valuable, I've only got one self, and I'm valuable. And what do I need if I'm going to be what I need to be and what, what do I need to be? And I had a wonderful example of this yesterday where I'm, coaching someone who's very involved in the Brexit process, telling me, you know, all the horror stories you could expect about the number of hours that they're working and how little account is taken of that. And she's just started building in to say things. She says, if I'm going to survive this, when I'm, I'm going to leave the office, when I can at this time, I'm going to switch off, I'm not going to do any work on the train, I'm going to get home at a time where I do something that's for me, and actually, when I walk between buildings, I'm just going to enjoy the fact that I'm outside and walking and not be thinking, what's the next crisis that I'm moving, walking into when I get into that building? And they're all things, you, you know, they're small things. 
But they're all about saying, I respect me, and if I'm going to deliver what this organisation wants, they're never going to look after me in the way that I need to be looked after. How would they know? Even the yeah. most insightful director of HR is not going to know. So I, I've got to I couldn't agree more. Ironically, if you, if you think of your body as a machine, you know, if you don't put the right elements, you know, and this is what I teach my six-year-old when he doesn't want to eat his broccoli. Mm. Like, the broccoli is the oil that keeps your mm. cogs going around. So if you don't eat properly, and, and it's a truism, and in January, I, I really don't like this big expectations of, of uh, New Year's resolutions. I think it's setting you up for disappointment in yourself and failure. But it's more about making small changes that, that, that give you... And I always see resilience as a big elastic band. Mm-hmm. Um, it can stretch sideways, it can stretch up and down. It gets really strange when, strained when it has to stretch laterally for a long time and then something drops on it and, and that's when it usually snaps. Mm-hmm. So it's about understanding what your own elastic is and what makes it more elastic and what makes it less elastic. Mm-hmm. Now, people can have a massive effect on that elastic, whether it's, as you said earlier... You know, elderly parents who need your care, or whether it's just a really annoying colleague who sits next to me. Well, there are ways around that. You just remove yourself and find. You know, uh, it, it might be yoga. It might be sitting staring at a blank wall. Um, they always say you should have a blank wall in your house to stare at. Um, and it's a. You know, it's a. There are lots of different mechanisms, but you can only find your own one. And once you've found it, and I think I wish I'd found mine much earlier you're actually set for life because then you know what your machine needs and whatever happens to it, you know, you know how you're going to be able to help it cope. That's about developing adaptive coping strategies for yourself. But, I mean, it was interesting that you were just saying, presumably the person you're coaching, um, Carol, is at a fairly senior level. A lot of people would possibly not have the flexibility in their working day to do that. I mean, they may not be empowered to make decisions about what they what they do and work and for how long and when. Uh, there may not be an environment they can just walk out of, you know. So what would you... How could we encourage better resilience and support for those individuals, given they may not have the flexibility of that? Well, they may lives. not, and I think that's where the leaders, um, you know, they may not be the most senior leaders, but whoever is line managing you has, I think, does have a responsibility to be thinking about the team as a whole in terms of their resilience, if we, you know, if we use that term. Um, and to be thinking, and to be noticing, you know, to be noticing why does, why does Joe seem to be less engaged with his work right now? You know, why is so-and-so looking exhausted the whole time? I mean, you know, to look at them as humans and, you know, you've got a responsibility to do some checking in and then to think, what, how can we help each other? I mean, somebody was telling me about how... Um, They'd, they'd got breast cancer. They were the team leader, actually, and they had breast cancer. And they said, I decided that I would share it with the team so I could also tell them, when I'm having a bad day, that I might need them to do more for me than I, they might normally expect to, so that they then have permission to do that with each other. So it's something about how you create the climate in which yeah, you're, you're looking out for each other rather than it's all... You know, you can put in policies, okay, but at the end of the day, it's about how people deal with people. And if I can notice that somebody else is struggling, and I'm willing to say, "Would you like to come and have a cup of coffee?" or "You really were getting het up in that meeting. Do you want to come and have ten minutes to debrief so you can get your, you know, so the heart rate goes down, the cortisol goes out their body, then they're better resourced for the rest of the day, and they're just human touch things." Yeah. 
And they're also, I mean, it comes back to the point about the bottom line, doesn't it? They are our most valuable, most expensive and most precious asset. Mm. You know, you can have the biggest, most expensive building in the world, but if you haven't got the good people to go in it, then you've just got, as you say, an empty shell. Big waste of carbon. Big waste of carbon. So probably what we need is almost like a, a, you know, a hashtag me too for, 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 you know, individuals and organisations around mental health and wellbeing Mm. and and making our our workplaces better and healthier for individuals. I think there's something else that's, that's... You know, hopefully we're coming to the end of this obsession with you know open plan co-working mm-hmm. spaces that are massively noisy, mm-hmm. uh, where the air quality is not good enough. Um, but what's what's starting to come out is the realization that um, there's a kind of magic sweet spot. If you let people work at home every day of the week, um, they lose all of the glue that they, mm-hmm. you know, it's the it's the sum greater than the parts. It can be quite isolating working at home as well. Well, it's very lonely, but also what happens is the loyalty phrase. And at that point, they don't care who they're working for. They could be working for anybody. The second issue is, and it's really interesting, I had someone complain to me, an engineer, the other day about, um, well, workers' rights in Germany, as many people will know, um, enshrine a right to natural light on your desk at whatever point. And it's really driven building design in Germany because you can't have these big, deep floor plans like we've had in the UK and in the US because you have to have natural light on everybody's desk. And the same thing is enshrined if you're working from home. So he was having to go into someone's house to put a window in (laughs) because the place where they worked didn't have a window. And this is one of the other risks. If you allow people to work at home, how do you know that their working environment at home is not the sofa cross-legged in a dark room with no natural light? Now, you could say, well, that's up to them. They've chosen to work from home. But they're still a member of your team, and you still need them to be in the right environment. And I believe there is a responsibility to make sure, in the same way that their laptop can connect properly and their phone works properly, that they actually have a decent working environment. And, you know, as an ex-employer, that also they're actually able to work at home, mm-hmm. and they're not actually sat playing computer games all day. I, I mean, in professional services, one of the things I'd say, which would be, you know, a great... Uh, leap forward is to recognise that people can be highly effective professionals but not necessarily good leaders Mm. (laughs) and therefore to put them in charge of teams and people assumes that they're going to be able to help people and look after them and so on but you can have two streams whereas actually traditionally most professional service firms have only promoted those who make the most money who win the biggest clients and so on that's a really key difference if you look at the mid-market in law they're streaming their lawyers now so there's a great um, outfit, a regional outfit in the, in the Midlands called Bretherton's. They have streams. They have a management stream and they have a professional uh, specialist stream. Yeah, and they pick people who are going to look after their people. I think that's, I think that's, I think that's brilliant. brilliant. I am yeah. mentoring someone right now who, uh, at our last meeting, um, basically just needed to off gas uh, everything that was going on. And one of her questions was, "How is it possible that my boss?" has been promoted to be head of this team. And I said, well, here's how this works. In most traditional industries, you're very good at one thing. Now, in her particular case, it's architecture. Very, very good at designing buildings. Then you get promoted to be the head of a group. Then you get promoted to be the head of region. And suddenly, hey presto, you're running the office. Now, at no point, to be fair to those people, traditionally, many organizations didn't give people proper management training didn't teach people what Carol was talking about. Look, look at the team as a whole. How are they responding? The fact that someone's, you know, flipped out in a meeting is probably not because they're that kind of person. They're probably having a really bad day. So why don't you take that for a coffee? Actually, if you put your feet on grass, bare feet, 
for 10 minutes, it reduces your cortisol levels. So go and take your shoes off and go for a walk in the middle of the park. If you can find some grass. Well, this is strangely odd looks. Yeah. So to be fair, managers weren't supported on the way up. And traditionally, uh, the dehumanised model was, oh, you're really good at running numbers. Okay, well, go and run some bigger numbers. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. suddenly you're running 15 people. Yeah. At what point was that a sensible decision? And I couldn't agree more. I think it's really, it's really insightful to, to recognise... But we're also a tribal animal. You know, we, we're, we don't live on our own. We never wanted to live on our own. So if you separate people too much, you, you bring in a whole load of different issues. You, it's complex managing people, but you need to remember that they're yeah. people and animals, not robots. And if you look at you know, what the two key things that constantly have been discovered when people have looked at resilience, people in all sorts of settings, people in prisoner of war camps, people living in war zones, people living with life-limiting illnesses. The two things that come up which are absolutely transferable to organisations is firstly, the people have got a strong sense of meaning in what they're doing. Because if you've got meaning, then you stick through the tough times. You've got something to anchor you. And the second thing is, they find a means of support. Now, those two things together manage a lot of the resilience issues that organisations face. Um, but as you've been saying, Amanda, when people are working at home, uh, how much attention is given to the support needs? Actually, when you're in work, when I walk into these vast open offices, do I get a sense of community? I get a sense of lots of individuals whose main relationship is with their computer screen. Bradley Hutchins. Yeah. <laughs> and on that bombshell. <laughs> but I think that, that apps, I think you've just absolutely hit the nail on the head there. What we've done is we've, so often we've, de- and this whole conversation has been about the fact that we've dehumanised the workplace, haven't we? And, you know, you know, from your comment about, you know, just because you're really good at something doesn't make you a natural leader, then right through to the idea that a, that a building can actually be bad and unhealthy for you. And there's a whole another conversation to be had about air quality, which I think we'll have to have you back for. But but we we're running fast, running out of time. Probably run over. I just wanted to, if have you got one very quick top tip that you could share with people who might be struggling with their own mental health? It may be going out and, and you know, or they're struggling at work with pressure. Um, it may be walking on the grass barefoot, but at this time of year in London, that may not be such a good idea. I mean, is there something that the, the one very quick thing that you think people could do? that's realistic or, or, or a plea to, a, to an organisation I mean I would say you know from a personal experience of shifting from one career to another if you are struggling don't try and deal with the whole problem in one go you know break it down because if you're in a senior position if you're feeling overfaced, it will be many things in your mind that you're thinking you have to deal with so it will look like an extra task just do as you know Philip was saying Go for a Carol. Go for a walk. Stand on grass. Just try things. Just yeah. start to adjust slowly the way you perceive the world. Don't try and do it in one go. Yeah. yeah. Have you a plea, Carol, to organisations and to senior organize- managers? Well, I think for organisations, a lot of what we've been talking about is how you create a sense of community that supports people, so that you know at the simplest level, how much social time do people have? I don't mean going away on team building things because they're one-off intense and the people who win come out feeling good and the people who didn't do so well come home even more demoralised. But, but actually, how do you build in that, that human factor within the normal day-to-day? You know, we used to do it because we would have tea breaks, we would have lunch breaks, uh, we would walk around to people's desks and hover and we see we've lost those things. Mm. And actually, if we could just bring back some of those 
things, just to remind ourselves that we are, you know, we are social creatures. And that a five-minute conversation when you've just had a terrible phone call from somebody can actually reset you because it's really about just resetting yourself. And we've lost a sense of the importance of social contact as a means of resetting. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Bring back the tea break. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that um, the easiest thing, uh, kind of what Ben was saying, is you know this isn't about a New Year's resolution. It's about slowly shifting things in your life that that will allow that pressure release. And we know we all work in very highly pressurised environments. But I think, um, it's interesting, I used to work in Paris a lot, and, and all the Americans in the UK would come back going, I can't believe they stopped. They went out for lunch. <laughs> and then after a while, they'd come back and say, I really miss those lunches. But there is, you know, to Carol's point, there's something very, very necessary and very human about that. And I think the easiest thing would be for an organisation is to ban people from having lunch at their desks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just to say you have to have a communal space and even if it's you just go and sit on your own and stare at the black wall or do something your brain needs to recharge, whether whether you're going to learn another language, which means you're using it in a different way, whether it's yoga, whether it is going to find a patch of grass, but taking that time to stop, especially if you're really highly pressurised and starting to panic. I mean, I've been there when the deadline's looming and the palpitations and you, you suddenly can't see straight. Actually, that is the moment to walk away, strangely, counterintuitively. It's not the moment to stick your head in your computer mm-hmm. because you're already not thinking straight. So stop and just be nice to yourself. I think banning lunch at the desk is fabulous, mm-hmm. particularly and take the plastic out as well, wasn't it? Turning up in the canteen with your, or with, your, with, your, with, your, with your bit of plastic, worse still, taking away a plastic container back to the desk. So ban lunch, lunch at the desk. Thank you so much, Ben, Karen, Philippa, for joining me. It's been a terrific very interesting conversation thank you to my guests and thank you for listening we would love to hear from you about what you think about planet pod you can tweet at planet underscore pod or get in touch via the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe and download previous episodes if you've enjoyed today's show please give us a five-star review it helps us make better programs be sustainable and stay green Planet Pod is an Akil Sounds production hosted by me, Amanda Carpenter, edited and produced by Jim Haywood, with additional research by Beth Palmer.